That's a beautiful and fitting song in a minor key uh, to help us as we come right back into um, a very moving scene in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 11, as we come and at this point in the gospel of Matthew witness our Lord Jesus Christ um, arrested illegally in the middle of the night without any charge hauled before Annas, the high priest, uh, well, uh, the power that be in Caiaphas at that time, the son-in-law of Annas, the high priest, and as they desperately try to find something to pin on Jesus, and, and finally accuse him for simply acknowledging who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ. They haul him before Pilate because they cannot carry out themselves the death penalty. They are not going to be content with anything less than a dead Jesus. And so early in the morning, probably five, Um, you say was that normal no there's nothing normal about that nothing this is unprecedented this is not how you do things but they are in a hurry to get Jesus crucified so they haul him before Pilate we've learned that up in chapter 27 verse 2 and then we come now to verse 11 which will be our consideration this morning Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor, that is Pilate, questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, that is the Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, 
Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. We pause, O oh God, because we understand as we come to your word, even having, even having heard it read, that we are responsible to understand what we have read and to respond accordingly. So we're pausing and we're praying because we are very needy men and women. We need to not only let these words pass through our ears into our brains, but, oh God, have mercy. We need to see what the Spirit has for our church and for us individually. So please, in your mercy and grace, bless us in these next few moments. Have mercy upon me. Help me to be clear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, for a few moments, I want to help you with a little bit of background about the setting, the scene, in particular, this man named Pilate. And then we will close this morning by fixing again our minds upon Jesus, because that is what the Spirit of God, the author of this letter, ultimately wants for all who read it. Remember, this is the time, the feast week, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the day, Friday, early in the morning, in which the Passover lambs will be slain. Jerusalem is filled to the brim and overflowing with people. Perhaps as many as a million people in this relatively what we would consider a small town. Because it was commanded of God that devout Jewish men would come with their families as they were able and offer up a sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. The city would be filled not only with men and women, boys and girls, stuffed everywhere trying to find a place to sleep and lay their head, but there would be countless numbers of lambs brought in by the shepherds from the surrounding areas so that there would be enough to be offered up and so that the people could celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, recognize the Passover, remembering God, the God of Israel's great redemption of the people of Israel out of Egypt, and how on the night in which he slew all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, 
God gave to the people of Israel a sign, an an expression of faith that they would slaughter a lamb, a spotless lamb, and take that blood. They would take that blood and collect the blood, and with a hyssop branch, they would take the blood and they would wipe that blood. Think of the scene. Wipe that blood over the door so that as the angel of the Lord passed by, the avenging angel of the Lord sent to impose judgment, they would be spared when God saw the blood. Jerusalem is full of people, full of animals, full of energy. This is the highest religious occasion of the year for Israel. This is a time in which people are coming together and they are full of excitement, of fervor, of religious zeal. They are in the shadow of the fortress occupied by the Roman soldiers and that is every year cause for resentment and whispers of one more yet attempt to cast off this pagan foreign occupying godless power. So the city is virtually every year at this time a powder keg ready to explode and it it had before and it would after the time of Jesus and under the Romans. So this is not a serene setting. This is not a quiet city. Uh, This is a packed city. This is a situation, a scene of much drama. And because this city is so full of people, most of whom probably at one point had heard the teaching of this Jesus of Nazareth, or at least heard of him, heard of his miracles, heard of his confrontation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, his cleansing of the temple, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the town, the high priest, Caiaphas, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're all in cahoots together. They hate each other's guts, but on this they are agreed. Jesus has got to go. They have to figure out a way to kill Jesus, murder Jesus, without stirring up the sentiments of the people. They don't know necessarily where the people are in concerning Jesus. After all, only a few days earlier, at the beginning of the week, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, what did the people cried? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had virtually acknowledged publicly their faith in Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah. So... Here it is, Thursday night when Jesus is arrested, or in the middle of the night, Friday. They don't know exactly where the people are at. So in cowardice, they arrest Jesus in the evening, in the night. They have an illegal trial in the middle of the night. They mistreat Jesus. They arrest him without even a charge. They don't even know why they're arresting him, but they're going to find something. They just hate his guts. And they want to get this over quickly in the dark before people become aware and maybe sentiment would change and maybe there'd be an uprising against the Jewish leaders and maybe they would follow Jesus. They don't know. It is ugly. It is unseemly. It is 
an absolute travesty and trampling underfoot of the law of God. They were those who in these hours with the arrest and the so-called trial of Jesus were the blind guides that Jesus had called them in Matthew 23. Blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. They were willing to run roughshod over every aspect of the law of God and concern concerning how someone was to be tried. God had demanded that there be two or three witnesses to find someone guilty. They, they were trying to find people to bring a charge against Jesus. They couldn't find him. And in the end, all they had on him was their unbelief in his statement that he was, in fact, the Messiah. Think about it. They had all the resources, all the power, but they could not find one single person who could bring an accusation of sin against Jesus. The only reason they were going to kill him, the only charge they could have among themselves, was that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And in their minds, that couldn't possibly be true. And more than that, even if it was, they would make sure it wasn't. They would silence and kill the Messiah. Their hypocrisy is really astounding. They'll trample over the law of God. They will commit this illegal trial. They'll, they'll break every aspect of what God said concerning justice. They'll ignore the truth about Jesus and his godliness and his righteousness. But they will haul him before a pagan, foreign general or governor named Pilate so that he will do their dirty business. They are so hypocritical in the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, verse 28, we learn they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. That's where the Roman government was stationed in Jerusalem, close by the temple. It was early, but the religious Jewish leaders, John says, they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they might not be defiled, but eat the Passover. They have no qualms about being thugs in the middle of the night. But when they bring Jesus to Pilate in the Praetorium, they are very careful to maintain their distance and stay outside, lest they become ceremonially unclean and unable to partake in the worship service later in the day. They are what Paul described in Romans chapter 10, those who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The Jewish people generally, these Jewish leaders, they, they had a zeal not for the true God of the scriptures, but for a God of their own making, a God who would accept them on the basis of their own righteousness. And so these are the Jewish leaders. These are, this is the scene This is the ugliness of this time. The leaders of Israel do not stand for righteousness, but bow and grovel before every lust of their own bloodthirsty hearts. 
so that they might slaughter Jesus and maintain their position, their power, their money. This is Israel and its leaders at this time. Next, I want to, as a way of background and setting, introduce you to this man named Pilate. Pilate is mentioned in all four Gospels, and he is absolutely critical. He is, in the sense of recounting the Gospel story, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. So I want to take just a few moments and introduce you to this man and to the time and and maybe it'll help you understand a little bit of the dynamics of this scene. It's been so helpful for me to study this and really eye-opening. Pilate had been uh, appointed by Caesar in Rome to this region. Uh, As you worked your way up in the Roman government and attained certain status and ability through the military or through family and through purchase, you were given the honor of overseeing and governing various provinces or parts of the vast Roman Empire. Pilate had been assigned to Judea, to this area, and it was notoriously a difficult region to governor because of the Jewish people, because they had that zeal for God without knowledge. Other areas were generally polytheistic. In other words, other areas overthrown by the Romans generally didn't have a problem with worshiping their gods. And as you brought in the flags of the Roman Empire with the symbol of Caesar as God, and they didn't have a problem. Oh, you want us to worship Caesar too? No problem. We'll just add him. We'll, we'll worship Caesar. But the Jewish people, they were unique among all of the nations within the Roman Empire. Because they wouldn't worship Caesar. They would submit to him to a degree. They, they would be willing to, in face of the overwhelming Roman power and force in their military, they would arrive at a political arrangement. But Pilate, early on, a few years earlier, before this occasion in Matthew 27, when he had first come to Judea, he had attempted to march into Jerusalem with the banners of the Roman Empire with Caesar. And he had thought he, he, is a, he was a tough man. He was a, um, a rough, tough political leader. He was a ruthless man. Uh, he had no problem just in his mind. I mean, he's going to su- subdue these people by just putting them under his heel. But what he found was he had a riot on his hands. And the people of Jerusalem rebelled and they were in an uproar the next morning as they found the banners of Rome all around the city of Jerusalem because in their minds this violated the command, you shall not make any graven images. There was an uproar. And time went by and and finally Pilate asked for a meeting with all of the people who were concerned about this and had them gathered into one place, and they didn't know it, but it was really a trap. And he stood before them, and he was determined he was going to keep these banners up. And they gathered in this place. He surrounded them with the soldiers, and then essentially, I'm paraphrasing, informed them 
that if they did not concede and allow these visible symbols of the Roman Empire and worship of the Caesar to exist, they would lose their heads. And surprise to, to Pilate, these Jewish zealots, these Jewish people, some of them literally taking apart their garments, getting down, laying bare their necks. They would rather be beheaded than see these graven images of Caesar in Jerusalem. Pilate had to concede. And he removed the banners and allowed this unique arrangement. But that's not all that happened because the Jewish people, the authorities at one point, um, reported Pilate to Rome because Judea had been a perennially challenging, difficult area. Over time, with, the, with Caesar, there had been an arrangement of a certain middle piece where, okay, we'll submit to the occupation, we'll pay taxes to Caesar, but our religion, our faith will be unique, our nation, because we will not worship other gods, we will not worship Caesar, and that's how we'll keep the peace. So Pilate had been reported for violating that general principle and had received a slap on the hand, as it were, from Caesar. So at the point we find Pilate here and Jesus, Pilate is a man who is the supreme power over Judea. Don't Make no mistake. He has the power to... He's the only one who has the power to give the death penalty. That's why the Jewish authorities bring Jesus before him. They, they know they can't. Pilate is ruthless. He is powerful. He is the authority in the area, and yet he is a man walking a political tightrope. And here he is in Jerusalem at the high point of the festival of the Jewish calendar. He's there with the soldiers to make sure that not another rebellion happens against Rome. He's there to make sure that everything's done as it ought to go, and so that no rebellion against Rome starts. The city is full of people, the city is full of fervor, of resentment against Rome, and Pilate finds himself in a pickle, we might say. Early in the morning, one of Pilate's servants come to him It's probably five in the morning. He may still be sleeping. I would be right now. And probably you would be too. And they are insistent. The whole Jewish authorities are, the contingent is outside the courtroom of the, or the praetorium out in the courtyard. And they're not coming in because they don't want to be defiled. But they have here in their minds a notorious criminal And out of their concern for the kingdom of Rome, the the empire, they want Pilate to know that this matter needs to be dealt with urgently. So Pilate gets himself together 
and comes out. And in the, in the various Gospels, we have more detail than we have here in Matthew. There's this kind of back and forth. And then we learn that Pilate learns that Jesus is originally from um, Galilee. And so he sends Jesus just not far. Herod is in town as well, goes over to Herod. And then Herod wants Jesus to show him a sign. Jesus doesn't. Herod sends him back to Pilate. So this back and forth, really in this very early hour, 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock, this is happening. Pilate is presented with a man who's already bloodied, already bruised, who looks weary. He's been arrested in the middle of the night, hasn't slept. He's been spit upon, slapped. And standing before Pilate is this Jewish man named Jesus. He's been delivered to Pilate. And the charge is by the Jewish authorities, the religious thugs, is that Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. Now, here it is. Think of the ugliness of this. These are the Jewish religious leaders, those who should above all, be recognizing the Messiah, and if they have recognized the Messiah, they, above all, should be rushing to the Messiah's side to stand for him, and instead, they are betraying their own Messiah, and the way that they're going to get him killed is by twisting Jesus's words to make him look as though he is a usurper and yet another Jewish insurrectionist against Rome which there had been more than a few over the centuries, over the years. And so Pilate asked him, verse 11, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Wow. Jesus did not say much. In fact, we're going to see in a moment, he said nothing, except when his interview, interview, his interrogation, that's the word I wanted, with the Jewish religious elite, Jesus had confessed that he was the son of man, the son of God, the son of man who would sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was the Messiah. Jesus would not answer their questions with anything except acknowledging that he was the Messiah. Pilate figures out that this is really an internal debate. And he figures out that Jesus isn't really doing anything to gather an army. He's not doing anything to build a network to rebel against the Roman Empire. Pilate is astute. He's wise. He's savvy. He he can figure out that, and he knows the character of these religious leaders. He, He sees that they are just jealous of Jesus that they are bloodthirsty in their hatred of Jesus. This is an internal debate. He sees very quickly that Jesus is no threat to the Roman Empire. And so you say, well, why? Why doesn't he just let him go? Because of this background, because of this political background, this situation Pilate is in, he already has a bad reputation with not only the Jewish people, but back in Rome for acting in a way that stirred up trouble. 
and he needs to maintain his authority, and yet, if he doesn't concede to the zeal and the the rage of the Jews in this situation, he's beginning to pick up that he'll be reported yet again and very likely lose his governorship. This is the situation he is in. This is the pickle he is in. So it's not merely his character, which his character is, is what it is. It's lacking. It's a very complex political arrangement and background to understand that explains kind of the back and forth and Pilate trying to arrange a way. He, he, he's constantly trying to placate the passion of the Jews. They'll have none of it. They'll have Jesus crucified or they'll have Pilate fired. No middle ground. And so this is the background, I hope, that helps us understand the action and the words of Pilate and the back and forth between him and the Jewish leaders. I want you to just, as we come now in in the next few moments, to fix our minds on Jesus. I want you to notice that thus far, we have learned at least that the hypocritical, false Jewish leaders and authorities just absolutely caved in to their own pride, their own lust for their own position. They were willing to to just do anything to maintain their position. They were willing to essentially bow to the will of Satan. And then you have Pilate, a man of dignity, a man who's given a position, a man who knows his authority, a man who has an entire regiment of Roman soldiers. He has at his ability the power of the Roman Empire, at his hand the might of the Roman Empire. And yet we find him throughout this scene trying desperately to maintain his stature and his authority, but ultimately bowing to and conceding to the whims of this Jewish mob. Just think about that. So here are the leaders of Israel, cowards, hypocrites. Here's Pilate, who clearly sees that Jesus is innocent, understands that no man should be crucified merely for a religious claim. All compromising, all bowing, all because of lust, pride, and fear. With that now, let's give our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. We we need to understand something of that setting because it's in that dark, twisted, hypocritical, bloodthirsty setting that the jewel of the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ shines And I have to attempt some semblance of an outline in the moments that we have remaining. And so first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus is the true king. The true king. The Gospel of Matthew is, the theme of it is 
Jesus the King, that he is in fact the son of David, he is the King of Israel. This is the entire argument of the Gospel of Matthew. Of course, it's the testimony of the other Gospels, but each Gospel emphasizes a various aspect. For example, the Gospel of John emphasizes the deity of Christ, that he is, in fact, not only a man, but the Son of God. But the Gospel of Matthew, from beginning to end, is putting before us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the King. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And do not miss verse 11. Pilate asks Jesus point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, as you say. It's astounding. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't pause. He doesn't take a moment to think about it. He doesn't try to cover it. Jesus standing there before the most powerful man in the entire nation and region claims to be king. We've seen this already, but each one of us has to deal with this. We do now, or we do in the last day. It's a very comfortable study this morning. Maybe those chairs aren't terribly comfortable, I know that. But, but this is a very comfortable setting, you know, it's rather warm in here, it's nice, and we have, you know, we're safe and, and so forth. And, and we're at some distance, nearly 2,000 years from this occasion. But make no mistake, the Holy Spirit of God, through his word, has Jesus standing, as it were, before each one of us this morning. And when you walk out that door, your response to him will be known to God and you will. You can't not respond to Jesus. You have to do something with him and his claim to be the king of Israel. And not only the king of Israel, but your king and mine. He is the true king. Secondly, I want you to notice in this text, in verse 11, that Jesus is the standing king the standing king. Now, I know that in verse 11, there's just one word. It's just a little description. Jesus stood before the governor. And I don't mean to make too much of merely his stance, but it's more than his physical posture, you understand. Jesus, if you can picture him standing early in the morning, weary, exhausted, already beaten, already spit upon, mocked, already abused, abandoned, not only by his disciples in general, but by his best and closest friend, Peter, with the sound of the crow, the roosters, not not crows, in his head, reminding him of the betrayal of his friend, he's there and he's been accused and he knows they want to crucify him and he's standing. And how do you picture him standing? Nervously? 
you, 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 you picture him kind of looking around or looking down. Uh-uh. Standing, looking Pilate square in the eye. And disarmingly for Pilate, when he looks into the eye of this Galilean countryman, finds not the slightest evidence of fear. That's not normal. Any other man who had experienced what Jesus had experienced and was accused as Jesus was by the Jewish authorities such that he understood that his life was about to be taken and not just in any way but to join the many thousands who had been hung like a piece of meat alive on a piece of wood outside the roads coming into Jerusalem. Any man who knew what was ahead of him, the suffering of the cross and and the potential of days hanging on that with birds, crows on your shoulders starting to begin to pick at your eye. I know it's a gross scene, but that's, that's what crucifixion was. An unspeakable prospect of, of torture. Any other man that Pilate had ever seen in this position, when he came before Pilate, that man fell on his knees and was prostrate before Pilate, pleading and begging and screaming, have mercy on me. I'm innocent. What they're saying is not true. I'll do anything. Just don't crucify me, please. Jesus is the only man of all the countless men who have stood before Pilate as judge. Jesus is the only man who has ever stood before Pilate without fear, with absolute composure, not pleading, not begging. See your king standing. He is the standing king. As I thought about it and just reflected on what we've learned in the Gospel of Matthew, it occurred to me, I don't, you can check me on this, Jesus doubtless stooped down at times in his ministry, as he did with a blind man to return his sight. We heard a message at the Shepherds Conference on Jesus' ministry to the man who'd been born blind. He had to doubtless stoop down and get the mud and put it on his eyes. And doubtless Jesus stooped down to minister to people. And, and doubtless when Jesus was a boy, perhaps he, you know, in honor, perhaps he honored his father and mother. So whatever culturally form that took, if that meant bowing his head or he, he doubtless did that. But consider this, that at least upon being baptized and entering into ministry, There is not one description of our Lord bowing and recognizing the authority of anyone but his Father in heaven. Why? Because he's the king. And while in Matthew 28, to the end of the gospel, 
after his resurrection, we're familiar with Jesus coming to his disciples and saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Jesus, all the way back in Matthew chapter 9, when there was a man who was brought before him who was crippled, you remember that scene, his friends bring him, and Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, and the, the Jewish authorities are in great an uproar. Who are you to forgive sins? And even then, Jesus said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Matthew 28 is not the first time that Jesus has authority over all the earth. Jesus has authority over all the earth the moment that he is conceived in the womb of Mary. He's the king. He's not clamoring for authority. He's not working his way up the ladder. When he, the son of God, becomes incarnate, comes to this earth walks on it. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Not recognized yet, but it's who he is. He doesn't bow before Pilate. Treats him respectfully. Doesn't dismiss Pilate. But he doesn't bow. He doesn't beg. He doesn't ask Pilate for a favor doesn't offer him money. Why? Because he's the king standing in all authority, in all regal authority. See your king standing. So fitting that we read Psalm 56 this morning. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? We, we know many psalms were going through the mind of our Lord. He, he is the living, walking word. He has the scripture in his head, pulsing through his veins and his soul. He knows it all. But doubtless, there he is before these men. And at some point, he's thinking of Psalm 56, looking these men square in the eyes and reciting in his own heart and head, Why should I fear man? He trusts in his father. His father is the only one he bows to. His father is the only one he submits to. He will not recognize the authority of anyone else because to do so would be to lie. He's the standing king. Finally, this morning... We may come back to this passage a little more next week. He is the silent king. He is the silent king. This is a a major theme or emphasis of verses 11 through 26. Pilate is astounded. All manner of accusations are being brought against Jesus. The chief priests and elders of the town they may not come into the praetorium but they're making such a racket Pilate has to come out to them and and they they just won't stop I mean they're just throwing one accusation at another and Pilate has to shut him up to try to get a word in with Jesus finally he has to pull Jesus aside interview him but we see in verse 12 that he was 
being accused, Jesus, by the chief priests and elders, and Jesus did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. And we know in the other Gospels that when Jesus went before Herod, Herod had the same experience. Herod, who had the authority uh, over the region of Galilee, he asked Jesus all kinds of questions. Jesus never even told Herod that he was the Messiah. He didn't, he didn't give Herod one word. He absolutely, Jesus, despised Herod as a false ruler of his people and didn't bow to even give him the dignity of one word. Our silent king, silent, incredible. Why was he silent? Why was he silent? Well, you can answer that question perhaps in a few ways. Again, it's related to the authority. These guys who are cross-examining him, who are demanding him of him that he answer questions, Jesus refuses to recognize their authority because they have none. It's a, these are, this is a false court. This is a false hearing. Everything about this is false. And, and Jesus won't submit to it. He's submitting to it in the form that he's allowed himself to be arrested. He's allowing himself to be subjected to this. But he won't give them the dignity of entering into a conversation. To answer them would be to throw pearls before swine. That's one reason why he's being silent. But the ultimate and great reason why he was being silent was fulfillment of Scripture. We've already seen this in previous weeks, but Isaiah 53, verse 7, speaking of the Messiah, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Why? He was silent because he was offering himself up as our lamb. He could have defended his own case. He wasn't at a loss of what to say. He could have wielded his authority. I mean, in Gethsemane, when he just said, I am, the whole crowd, including Judas, fell back and on the, on the ground. He's the word of God incarnate. He's not at a loss of words. Like, or doesn't know what to say, like I sometimes don't know what to say. He's an absolute command. He knows the truth. He understands every single facet of what's happening. He knows. He's not confused. He's not amazed. He's not surprised. He is falsely accused. Everything they're saying about him except charging him with claiming to be the Messiah, that's true, but everything else is a lie. He'll do nothing to defend himself. He'll do nothing to argue for his innocence. Why? He will remain silent for the purpose of submitting himself to the Father's will to offer up himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He was silent for your sin and for mine.
it's appropriate in a way that we're silent in the presence of one like Jesus. The majesty and the glory of who he is. He's a victim, but that's not how you should primarily think of Jesus during his arrest and betrayal. Don't think of him primarily as a victim. Think of him as your victorious king laying down his own life, no one taking it from him, laying his life down for your sins and for mine's, for mine. It's awesome. He's awesome. He's the true king. He's the standing king. He's the silent king. Which requires us to be silent before him in awe and majesty and worship. But then at some point, we got to open our lips. We got to bend our knees. We better not be standing before him. We better bow. (laughs) And we better not be silent. But as we started this morning with our call to worship, we should, with all of heaven, proclaim to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing, and we're embarrassed how low our thoughts are of you, maybe how few they are. We're ashamed at how we've had the scriptures maybe for so long, but we maybe haven't seen something of your majesty and of your kingliness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're doing in these weeks as we as a church go through this portion of your word, we recognize that you, Holy Spirit, are through your word opening the eyes of our hearts to the glory and majesty of our King. Help us, O God our Father, by your Spirit, to rightly love, adore, and honor your Son to bow before him with our hearts and even our bodies and to confess with our lips, with all our hearts, that Jesus Christ is Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.